Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What? Welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kearns. Thank you very much for coming back, or if this is your first episode, welcome. I hope you will join us on this journey from the end of Roman Britain to the Norman Conquest. This week, episode two, Sub-Roman Britain. Last time, we talked about the end of Roman Britain, how and why the imperial government collapsed, why people abandoned towns and villas in favour of ancient hill forts, and whether the Roman way of life continued in Britain. Today's episode expands on that to focus on the peoples and politics of Britain in the post-imperial period. In particular, today's episode will focus on the emergence of sub-Roman Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries. That term probably needs some explaining. You will often hear people talking about post-Roman this or sub-Roman that. At least you do if you move in the circles that I move in. In Britain, the terms emerged out of the disciplines of history and archaeology, respectively. Historians tended to speak of post-Roman due to the catastrophic end of Roman rule discussed in the main written evidence. In contrast, archaeologists tended to speak of sub-Roman to indicate that the archaeological material tended to suggest decline in quality and quantity but also continuity in forms and attitudes, thus making the term post-Roman inappropriate, since the material evidence pointed to some continuing elements of Romanness. With these first two episodes, I want to show you both sides of the narrative. Last episode, we focused on the end of Roman Britain. Today's episode will focus on how Rome continued to influence the Britons, and how this influence shaped the world that the Saxons encountered when they arrived in the mid-5th century. It seems unlikely that a Briton in the early 5th century knew that they'd lived through the end of Roman Britain. As Guy Halsall points out in his iconoclastic book, Worlds of Arthur, all written accounts of the end of Roman Britain were composed with the hindsight of at least a few decades, when it was clear that things were not improving for the empire. In the early 5th century, there is every reason to think that people expected the legions to be resupplied eventually, that Roman order would return. Hindsight is of course 2020, so we know that that didn't happen. But especially since the decline of Roman Britain was several generations old by 406-407, it's difficult to imagine that most Britons would wake up one morning and suddenly see themselves as post-Roman. On the contrary, the evidence indicates that at least the British elite continued to affect Romanness and to cultivate contact with the wider Roman world for over a century after the terminal dates of 406 to 410. The continued building in fortified western towns like Bath and Exeter suggests that even if they were no longer urban settlements, they were at least being used by elites, indicating that they retained some importance as symbols of authority. At elite sites like Tintagel in Cornwall and Longbury Bank in Wales, wine and other goods continued to be imported from the eastern Mediterranean into the 6th century. 
The same elites who controlled these centres also commissioned memorial inscriptions, written in Latin, in which they styled themselves with Roman titles. The practice of memorialising the dead in stone is itself distinctively Roman. These stones also provide evidence that Britons were keeping up with developments in Latin elsewhere in the empire. This is seen, for example, in the Cantioryx inscription from North Wales. This gravestone commemorates a Wenedotian citizen. I'll say more on Wenedotia later. But the word it uses for citizen is very interesting. It doesn't use civis, C-I-V-I-S, the correct term in formal Latin. Instead, it uses kiwe, C-I-V-E, which is a spoken form of the word that occurs elsewhere in Western European inscriptions in the 5th and 6th centuries. Remember that for most of human history, the spelling of words was not fixed, and people tended to write the way that they spoke. The kiwe of the Cantioryx inscription suggests that a Briton in North Wales in the 5th and 6th century was familiar enough with changes in popular Latin on the continent that he reflected them in a gravestone, apparently with the expectation that others would be able to understand it. Since elite sites in the West continued to trade with the Roman world, this isn't surprising, but it is telling since it indicates the extent to which Britain remained part of a larger Roman cultural zone. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality and dietitian approved and it's all ready to go in two minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor. And I've got to say, I've been extremely impressed with all of them. They genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today and get after your goals. If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash anglo50 and use code anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code anglo50 at factormeals.com slash anglo50 to get 50% off. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Apparently, the Britons also still saw themselves as citizens worthy of imperial protection. At some point between 447 and 454, Gildas tells us that they sent a plea for military aid to the consul Flavius Aetius. To quote Gildas directly, quote, Again, therefore, the wretched remnant sending to Aetius, a powerful Roman citizen, addresses him as follows. To Aetius, now consul for the third time, the groans of the Britons. And again, a little further thus, the barbarians drive us to the sea, the sea throws us back onto the barbarians. Thus, two modes of death await us. We are either slain or drowned. End quote. If the plea was actually sent, and isn't just a part of a legendary tradition co-opted by Gildas, 
then it's telling that the Britons seemingly felt that the Romans would come to their aid as fellow citizens. Remember Zosimus said that the Britons went into rebellion in 409, but if this was so, then why would they expect help from Rome later? Probably they felt this way because they'd already received help from the continent, even after the legions had left. The most well-documented case of this is that of Germanus, Bishop of Auxerre, who travelled to Britain in 429 to combat the Pelagian heresy. While there, he also used his former experience as a soldier to help the Britons defend themselves from Pictish and Saxon raiders. Probably, the Britons hoped for similar aid when they sent their later groans, but this time no help came. Nevertheless, the important thing to stress about the Germanus episode, along with the continued interaction with Roman traders, is that it seems likely that the Britons, or at least the British elite, still saw themselves as part of the wider Roman world. While, with hindsight, the early 5th century is a major moment of change, there is a significant amount of evidence to suggest that at the time the change was not immediately obvious. However, even while the elites continued to see themselves as Roman, the world they occupied was changing. The relative unity that had characterised Roman rule was being replaced by a more fragmented political structure, based around relatively small kingdoms, and this fragmentation was weakening the Britons' ability to resist barbarian incursions. The British elite in the 5th and 6th centuries were less wealthy than their predecessors had been. Add to this the end of centralised Roman authority, and the period becomes a hotbed for factionalism and civil war, as elites struggle to establish themselves. Gildas refers on several occasions to infighting among the Britons, and this infighting is usually seen as the political context in which new British successor states emerged. The early history of these states is completely lost in a fog of myth. Several of them, including Gwynedd, Dyved and Dumnonia, seem to have existed in some form by the mid-6th century. This is when Gildas is usually thought to have written, and in his letter on the ruin of Britain, he identifies several tyrants associated with the three kingdoms just named. Much later, written sources would attribute the foundation of these kingdoms to legendary figures, such as Cuneva, but there is no evidence to support or refute these stories. Geographically, the British successor states of which we know anything were all located in the rugged terrain of the west and north. In some places, the rulers of these new kingdoms exploited the terrain by building new fortifications in hard-to-reach places like Tintagel in Cornwall, Deganwy in Gwynedd, and Dumbarton Rock in Strathclyde. Elsewhere, these new kingdoms developed around old Roman forts and towns, such as in South Wales, where Dyved emerged around Moridunum, modern Carmarthen, or Powys in northeastern Wales, which developed around the town of Chester. Probably these states grew organically out of the Romano-British elite who sought refuge in the hills. Consequently, they also retained elements of the older Roman political structure. Remember the Cantiorix inscription? Well, that offers the earliest extant evidence for one of these successor states. The Wenedotia mentioned in that inscription is elsewhere identified as the Latin name for Gwynedd, the kingdom of medieval North Wales. In that stone, the dead man's cousin, Maglus, is called a magistrate, indicating that early Gwynedd retained some elements of surviving Roman hierarchy. The fighting that came with the emergence of these new kingdoms certainly weakened the Britons' ability to defend themselves against barbarian invasion. 
The Irish, Picts and Saxons had always threatened Britain, but until now they could be rebuffed by a somewhat unified response. Once the British elites began warring among themselves, they fell into the mistake that has seen people throughout history fall to expansionist powers. Their infighting and old grudges could be easily exploited, and once it became clear that Rome wouldn't be sending help, the Britons began to look elsewhere for aid. At some point, exactly when is not clear, a council met headed by a powerful figure known only as Watergurn. While often treated as a name, Watergurn actually seems to be a title, since in Britonic it means something like overlord. Regardless, the story offered by Gildas tells us that this Watergurn led the council in deciding on a new strategy to defend Britain. They would pay off one of the barbarian groups with some land and get them to fight off the other barbarian tribes. We don't know why they chose the Saxons as their new allies. Possibly they felt that their homeland was too far away from Britain to cause a problem, or possibly they had more positive views of them than they did of the Irish and the Picts. For whatever reason, Watergurn and the council chose to invite the Saxons to settle in eastern Britain in return for their help as warriors. It was a decision that would reshape Britain and the world forever. Of course, we don't know how true this story actually is, but it is undeniable that in the 5th century something happened that caused a Germanic language and a Germanic culture to become dominant in the south and east of Britain. The peoples responsible were the very allies that Watergurn had hoped would save sub-Roman Britain. Exactly how and why this major change occurred is a topic of huge debate, and that will be the focus of our next episode when we discuss, finally, the Adventus Saxonum, the coming of the Saxons. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. You can find a bibliography for this and future episodes on the show's website, the link for which you can find in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you again next time. And once again, I am your host, Tom Kearns, and this is the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.